This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Law School Show. I'm Jake Clark, and joining me today is Stephen Chaplin, a noted authority on constitutional law, professor at UOttawa. And we are talking about federalism, a topic that has probably been at the forefront of a lot of uh, people's studies, given the recent carbon pricing reference at the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, we've talked about that reference on this show before. I myself talked about it with uh, Natalie Shalafour and Jeremy DeBeer. And we're looking to sort of explore what that might mean uh, from a practical law perspective, as well as from the perspective of historical context around Canadian federalism. Professor Chaplin, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, Jake. And you? I'm doing all right. I'm 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 surviving. Good. It's all we can ask for these days. Indeed. Now, to get us started, I'm wondering if you'd uh, introduce yourself. As I, I mean, I, I gave a bit of it, but could you tell us a bit about your your research, your area of study, and your previous work in the law? I, as you noted, I am involved in uh, the area of constitutional law. My particular studies are in uh, matters of the law and as it relates to parliament, parliamentary privilege, the relationship of parliament to the executive. I learned a lot uh, in that area, of having been counsel, senior counsel at the House of Commons for 12 years. So uh, those issues came up. Uh, of course, the issues of federalism also arise when members were looking either to do uh, drafting of private members' bills or amendments to government bills. Of course, at the federal level, you always had to be aware of uh, the effects on provincial jurisdiction. So those uh, areas came up tangentially in my work there. And then for the last few years, I've been teaching constitutional law, particularly federalism and division of powers at the University of Ottawa. And full disclosure, you've taught me constitutional law. I hope I've taught you constitutional law. <laughs> well, we're about to find out because that's the springboard from which I'm able to concoct these questions about federalism. And I guess as sort of a review for that, if we want to talk a bit about the history of Canadian federalism, sort of from the 1860s to the present, if we can sort of like do a thumbnail sketch of the trajectory that's brought us to the current reference. Are, are, we, are we up to that? Sure. One of the things that the uh, the history of uh, of federalism in Canada is somewhat well, it was unique in the sense that it was the first British colony to basically become a country that was a federal state. So the Constitution Act 1867, known to some of us dinosaurs as the British North America Act, was enacted in 1867, where the British Parliament, with the advice of the ministers here in Canada, or pre-constitution or pre-confederation ministers, decided to set out a form of federalism in Canada, where they listed uh, various subject matters that would be the responsibility of provincial legislatures and those that would be the responsibility of the federal government. And of course, right from the beginning, there were lawsuits about who had authority over certain matters, given that uh, the categories that were written into the Constitution, particularly in sections 91 and 92, were relatively broad and somewhat vague. So you could talk in terms of trade and commerce versus property and civil rights, trade and commerce at the federal level, property and civil rights at the provincial level. So you can see right from the beginning, there was some understanding that there was going to be some overlap. 
the initial response of the courts in Canada was basically to give a, not, a fair amount of power to the federal government. But at the time, the higher level or the highest level of uh, authority for uh, determination of questions of law, particularly constitutional law, lay with the Privy Council, uh, the Jewish Committee of the Privy Council in the United Kingdom. When it got there, the uh, Privy Council was somewhat concerned about provincial rights. So they began to uh, favor provincial rights by defining them uh, in, in a particular way where they became what were referred to basically as watertight kinds of containers, where these were the things the federal government did, these were the things the provincial government did. And if something fell within your container, you had fairly broad powers within those two areas, partly because at the time when we're talking the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, everyone would have probably known what those areas contained. Uh, of course, as we move forward into times, particularly in the Second World War, post-Second World War, matters become considerably more complex. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, of course, the Privy Council stops being the highest level of authority. So you have the Supreme Court of Canada starting to review the questions of Canadian federal federalism, much more from a Canadian context. And the Supreme Court of Canada decides that it is considerably more nuanced and complex. And what they try to do from basically the 1950s forward is to come up with some way of allowing for more overlap and what has become known as cooperative federalism. That is allowing both levels of government relatively expansive powers. In other words, they begin to break out of the watertight containers to a certain extent and trying to have cooperative federalism. So they come up with various doctrines involving issue things such as double aspect, where you, you can have both levels of government regulating aspects of business in different areas. Things like ancillary powers, where they allow each level of government to basically to allow their schemes to function to have certain powers that on their own would fall within the other jurisdiction. However, um, to make their schemes function, they allowed the, uh, each level to sort of encroach to a certain extent on, on each other's response, areas of responsibility in a limited way. More recently, the courts have begun to even back off further and have been encouraging things like federal provincial agreements uh, and uh, monetary policy and those kinds of things, spending powers to basically allow money to move back and forth more freely. Uh, things uh, like uh, you know contribution agreements, uh, those kinds of things, federal schemes where the if a province doesn't want to have a follow a federal scheme, but has its own scheme like pension plans in Quebec, the federal government will transfer funds as long as Quebec uses them in that particular case for their pension plan. So there's much more cooperation, much more flexibility built into the system. And that's basically uh, where we've got to at the present time, where the courts try to allow uh, levels of uh, government to be relatively expansive. But the one thing that they are guarding perhaps a bit more is the idea that neither level of government, particularly the federal level of government, cannot act in a way as basically to usurp the powers of the provinces. So in every time the court looks at a matter of uh, division of powers, one of the things they look to, and we'll see as we go through this case, how the court protects 
federalism and ensures that powers are only being exercised uh, in such a way, for example, if it is going to be what could be a major infringement of provincial powers by the federal government, the, uh, the court will rein it in to ensure that federalism continues to operate. The easiest way to look at that, in, and we'll see here, is if you can have a law for the general welfare of Canada, or peace, order, and good government, or for all trade and commerce in Canada, um, if you read a lot into that, or you give that an expansive meaning, of course, you can see how that would push out provincial responsibilities. And the reason that becomes important is we do have a doctrine of paramountcy at the end of the day in Canada that says if the federal government and the provincial government can legislate and that they do legislate and their contrary regimes, the federal regime would apply. So uh, the idea is that the federal government, if it, quote, overreaches to a certain extent, it would push out provincial authority. So the courts have been very concerned about that question, and they will protect particularly provincial autonomy, provincial responsibility when the federal government exercises its broad powers. All right. That's an excellent sort of trajectory there. There's a lot to unpack there. And I'd like to kind of go in order a little bit. So we mentioned watertight compartments. Of course, that's Lord Atkin. That's what we all learn in, um, in public law and certainly in constitutional law. And that's in the late 1930s. Correct. That's when he's uh, he uh, made that statement. Now, as you mentioned, things started to change probably within a decade and certainly within two of his writing that. And I think uh, what I'm thinking of here, and I think what we're both thinking of, are the references on what they were called the atomic references at that time, weren't they? That's a, a good example of newness. And I'd like you to I'd like to kind of ask you to unpack that a little bit. There were there were a couple of things. And I think what you're talking about is the peace, order and good government clause. One of the things that is embedded in all constitutions relating in federal constitutions when you have division of powers between federal state and states or federal state and, and provinces you always have the question of what happens when something new comes along or something different comes along or something that wasn't contemplated now there's where does residual power lie in that constitutional structure and in Canada the residual power lies with the federal government in the opening words of section 91 where it says that the federal government may make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada and basically can make laws for all things that are of a national nature or national concern. And we'll talk about that in in a few minutes about national concern. But what happens is that uh, where matters uh, are are new in a particular way um, that the federal government would look at look after those kinds of things or constitutionally would become responsible for it. And what's the question of what is new is always one that has bedeviled the courts to, to a great extent because there are two kinds of newness. You can have newness in the idea that something that no one even began to contemplate, and those are the aeronautics cases, for example. Flight was not even on anybody's radar except you know, a few, I don't know. Uh, Jules Verne. <laughs> Jules, Jules Verne and perhaps before that Leonardo da Vinci. But the idea of who would regulate flight once flight becomes uh, something that is uh, that can make be commercialized. So you have, the, so that's a new thing, a complete new idea, a complete new 
something that we hadn't thought about. So you, you have that kind of newness that comes along. And that's one way that the peace order and government powers have been used. The second is where there is a new understanding of something, or we come to a new knowledge of something. And this is, I think, what you were talking about in the uh, in the atomic energy cases, where prior to the 1930s and perhaps early 40s, if one were to look at the mining of uranium, which those cases did, you would have the idea that, well, it's a resource. It, it's, uranium is really not that different than zinc, copper, tin, gold, whatever. And everyone recognized that the responsibility for mining um, and resource management was a provincial responsibility. So there's no doubt that uranium mining would have fallen, in fact, would uh, did to a certain extent fall within provincial authority. But along comes the 1930s and 40s, and you have the development of uh, the concept of nuclear energy, nuclear power or atomic energy. And, you know, it was sort of in a nation state until 1945 and the atomic bombs. And you have the recognition that, of course, now uranium has its a completely different understanding of what the effects of uranium mining and uh, the, the the control of that resource was. So, of course, what the court says, if there's a new understanding with respect to a particular issue or a particular matter, um, and it's such that it would be raised to the level of a national concern, in this case, danger and disease and radiation and, and those kinds of things, that um, it would be with that new understanding, in fact, something that was provincial sort of migrates into the federal area. It's relatively rare, but it is uh, it is the new a new power can be created that way at the federal level. That's an excellent explanation. And in keeping with that, I would like to talk about the securities reference, but first, I think we should probably mention something about the content of the current carbon pricing reference, and that is how the matter is defined, because that's very important, especially the terminology. Tax? How tax is defined? No, whether, yeah, because I, I believe I'm guilty of this. I think I've often said carbon tax reference, and I know that the carbon pricing tax is very, and that's a very significant point right. in, the, in the reference. And I was wondering, if, would, would you be able to unpack that a bit for us? I will. I can unpack that for you. I mean, my uh, one thing that I will note, I am not a tax expert, so I'm not 100% the person to perhaps ask on whether or not a tax should be a federal tax or a provincial tax. But for the purposes of this discussion, I can uh, explain that the difference between a tax and a price or a tax and a fee or those kinds of things, administrative fees, there is a difference. And the difference is this. A tax is something that is basically designed to raise general revenue. In other words, when the government imposes taxes, it is a way for the government to collect from various individuals and companies revenue that it can spend on whatever it chooses to spend it on. So that's a tax. It it's not connected necessarily to anything. There may be things that are taxed, but that's just the purpose is, in fact, to gain revenue. A, an administrative charge, or in this case, pricing, is a price, a fee, or uh, something that is connected to a, a regime. So there's a policy to which the uh, fee is, in fact, attached. One way to look at it is, for example, a license. When you when you buy a license, part of the money is to, goes to running the scheme and regulating the scheme. It, uh, so a license is not a tax. And in this particular case, what the courts find is that it's connected to the purpose is not to raise revenue, but goes to the carrying out or the purpose 
purpose of uh, a particular scheme. In other words, the purpose is not revenue raising, but in this case, it, it may be behavior driven. It may be a way to manage the emissions by businesses. So it's, it has a purpose other than to raise revenue. So what we have here is, in fact, a pricing of carbon as a way to control uh, greenhouse gas emissions as part of a regulatory scheme. It is not designed to raise revenue. And there's two aspects. One is there's that connection, but also the fact that there's a rebate system that's also connected to it, which was not part of the challenge. But you can see that the idea and how it operated to price and rebate was related to a scheme as opposed to uh, the purpose to raise revenues. So in fact, it's a pricing scheme, not a taxing scheme. Now, with that in mind, I think we should spend maybe a bit of time comparing this to the securities reference, as I, which I learned in your class. So tell me how my understanding uh, goes, but essentially saw the question put forth as to whether the federal government could install a pan-Canadian securities market, which was at that point the bailiwick of the provinces. And the answer was a fairly resounding no. And can we shall we contrast that a bit with the definition of the matter here, the power in play that is being seen now with the carbon price? Yeah, the the issue is is I guess the easiest way to explain the difference. And you're right. What the national security reference was about was the federal government wished to establish using its trade and commerce powers a pan Canadian securities commission. Uh, so it'd be basically like, you know, the Toronto Stock Exchange or Securities Commission in Ontario, which regulates this, the trading of stocks. And each province had its own. And the the fact that it was the idea behind it, raising it to the federal level is that a lot of stocks and bonds now trade internationally. Money is quite fungible. It moves around very, very quickly um, and that it's connected into the international monetary scheme. And so the idea was that perhaps it was something that was more appropriate for the federal rather than the provincial governments to have in play. So that was basically what was behind the, the idea. There's a couple of things about it, though. The court here makes a, a distinction about. Um, and let me just so I'm just going to park that just for a half a second and look at what's going on here with respect to the carbon pricing regime. And the carbon pricing regime what is designed to set a federal minimum for carbon pricing. And the idea is to encourage provinces to have their own carbon pricing regime, but creating a floor. In other words, a minimum price that provinces have to charge or have as part of their pricing scheme. And then they can be released from the federal scheme uh, because their their pricing is exceeds that of the minimum established by the federal government. So I think the distinction that the court makes between the two of them is one is, it, is that uh, in the case of the securities reference, when the federal government created this, this central organization or tried to create the central organization, promises could opt in. So there was an immediate recognition that securities were in fact a provincial responsibility and they were going to allow provinces to opt in to the scheme. So the provinces would be giving up their authority to the federal government. And from that point forward, it would be uh, managed by the federal government. What's different about the tax or the carbon pricing scheme is that the federal government was basically releasing the provinces from an obligation. So they were creating a minimum obligation. And then provinces, once they exceeded those pricing requirements or, or they put in place a regime, they would in fact be released from the scheme. So in fact, they're almost 
mirror images of each other. One is where the provinces are giving up authority to get into a federal scheme, and the other is a federal scheme that provinces can get out of by having um, their pricing uh, of carbon that would exceed that of, of the federal minimums. So in some ways, what the, the court is saying from a federalism perspective is, in fact, the pricing scheme is an enabling, in, in an odd way, is an enabling or an encouraging of provinces to expand into the area of greenhouse gas emissions, but creating a floor as opposed to a scheme that people become part of. So they are related in the sense that they were they are common issues that were being confronted. That is that a particular problem was growing out of the, um, how to put it, if one looks at it uh, beyond the scope of what they thought the provinces could manage. For example, in that, and then the security reference provinces maybe not being able to manage international securities particularly well. And so it, it was a growing national concern from that perspective. And the idea was the federal government would reg regulate the whole scheme. Here, what you have is what started out when we were younger, people referred to as you know, pollution and, and air pollution and those kinds of things, greening, moving into greenhouse gases and climate change. So something that starts and is growing. But the, what the federal government does here is it says, okay, provinces, we, we recognize you may be responsible for regulating some of this stuff, but there has to be a national minimum. So you can still go on having your authority. We're not trying to take that authority from you, but we are setting a minimum um, so that at, at least there is a minimum standard across the country. So in the sense that there were growing problems that were becoming international in scope, but the way that the, the federal government chose to deal with them was quite different. So you end up with different results. And with this in mind, I mean, every single every every time we've uh, spoken about uh, on this show about the um, carbon pricing reference we brought up, its impact on the Crown Zellerbach line of cases, which deals with the tests for, among other things, provincial inability. Right. And having contrasted it with the securities reference, which engages a separate power, I, I think it may benefit us to talk a bit about the impact on that line of cases and where you think that trajectory is. Th there are a couple of things about this that I think that are is important to note from that line of cases. And if, if I can very briefly remind people what that case basically said is for something to be of a national concern, you had to have something that was new. And we've talked about the kinds of newness, so I'm not going to, to repeat that, but it had to fall within the newness basket of it has to be what the court does here, though, is it, it really makes focuses on the idea of a national concern versus local concern, that whole idea of something not being local but being national or international in scope, so that you have to have a national concern. So that was part of the Zellerbach case, but it, the court, I don't, I don't say downplayed it, but they didn't focus on it as much. They had to focus on it in this particular case because it was something that one would normally see perhaps as matters of local concern being pollution becoming a national concern. So they had to make a distinction between federal, so what is a national concern and what is a local concern. So the, the court basically focuses first on that part of the test. And they say for something to be national concern is almost a common sense, but you do have to have facts. And in this case, they said, you start looking at the idea of the Paris Accords, the fact that there were numbers of attempts by international organizations and provinces and states and subnational governments, all coming to a consensus that 
pricing of carbon was perhaps the best way to address an issue. So the idea here was that it was something that was clearly beyond the provinces, is a national concern. That That's the first thing they focus on. The second thing is that the court becomes quite concerned about the second part of the Zellerbach test, which is you have to have a matter which is unique. You can define it. It is distinctive. And, and you can sort of somehow put some description around it. And the court focuses a fair amount of its attention on that aspect of the test as well, because it is concerned about how broadly one defines that unique, distinctive part of the Zellerbach test by saying it's got to be very, first of all, it is a unique power, section 9192, it is not to be used lightly. Second of all, the court says that you have to define it as narrowly as possible. So what happens in this particular case is they, they focus on the legislation itself. And so they really don't try to have a large scope for what is going on. They said, if the le- we will only look at this uh, basically on a legislation by legislation basis. We're not going to say, if, for example, in this case, we're not going to say, oh, the federal government has responsibility for climate change or the federal government has responsibility for carbon emissions. What they're saying is you have the uniqueness or the thing, the way we're going to define this is very narrowly. We're only going to focus it on carbon pricing. So that's the second part of the Zellerbeck test is they really, instead of looking at a, uh, what areas coming along or, or, or whatever, they look at specific pieces of legislation. And that will have an impact and we'll come back to the future. But this idea of looking at things almost legislation by legislation, at one point, the court says, look, Parliament only legislated in this ver- this one particular scheme. As a result, we're not looking at the context. We're only look- going to look at the scheme itself. And the final point, which is really probably, uh, so that's the one part of this that is important for the future going or, or looking at this line of cases that may flow from this. One is this narrow definition. The set Second part, which the court really emphasizes, is provincial inability as being a test. And they say two things about this. And they say that both of these have to be found to be part of the, the test. And the, first of all, is that the provinces are unable or incapable of doing this directly or collectively, in other words, individually or collectively to manage a problem. And so the first thing they look at is, you know, will this scheme actually function if all of the provinces aren't in it? In other words, if some provinces are in, some provinces are, will the scheme actually, can the scheme actually work? And they're concerned there about primarily the idea whether or not the scheme will operate not the effect of the scheme, but will it in fact operate? Can you have the scheme function if certain provinces are in or out of the scheme? So you, there has to be sort of not quite a critical mass, but if there's a movement towards a particular scheme, can provinces by way of an agreement put this together? What happens if a province drops out? Can you enforce the scheme? So that's the first test. But the new twist to it was the second part, which would, so that inability test was always there. And it was not articulated quite as succinctly, perhaps, as I just put it, you know, can the scheme function? But that that part of the test was always there. But what was new was also what the effect of a province not participating would be. And here they talk in terms of will there be grave consequences on others and other provinces, and in, in this case, both provincially, but also internationally. So if, if somebody does not 
participate. It's not a, one one part is the inability of the scheme to function, but much more importantly in this particular case and for the test, as the, the court also says, is if a province doesn't participate in this scheme, will there be grave consequences f- for other provinces? And in this case, of course, what you have is greenhouse gases will escape across Two things. One is it will they'll cross the, the provincial boundaries. But second of all, of course, the scheme won't function. So you have both aspects in this particular case. It's the scheme wouldn't function because you may have for instance, you know, greater emissions from a particular province which aren't being adequately dealt with, but also if they're not dealt with, that there would in fact be great impacts or grave impacts on other provinces and other countries because of greenhouse gas emissions. So the court added this idea of a two-step provincial inability to this. And the court's view is that by doing these or imposing these two tests, that they would be creating a high bar for future uses of peace order and good government powers of the federal government. Because when you start looking at things that would might otherwise fall within provincial jurisdiction for something then to, when it becomes national because of its is growing impact or its our, our understanding of something growing to a national concern, often there are matters that would otherwise be seen as provincial. And so as you're saying, okay, this is now rising to a national level, before you give an authority to the federal government, you have to have show both the inability uh, of a province and the effect on the scheme, but also the, the grave danger that it would cause to other provinces or, or internationally. Now, going forward, because this is clear, this clearly has substantial effect as, as an addition to the Crown back precedent as an addition to, as a contrast to securities reference, as what we've said before. I think one question, obviously, with the existential threat of climate change, but also with the very current public health issue in which we are all currently living, how do you think this will play out? Do you have any sort of predictions on how this will affect the way we practice law at the federal level? There are a couple of things I think I I would note. First of all, the other thing that was unique about this case, and perhaps we didn't raise, is when you when the the government was uh, sorry when the court was describing the scope of the case, it was not just the scope of the federal power but how it would be carried out. In other words, there's a process in here. The greenhouse gas pricing was found to be the pith and substance, not emission control, but emission control emission control by way of carbon pricing. So you had both the subject matter, which we would normally see as greenhouse gas emissions, but they married it also to the process. So it is not only greenhouse gas emissions, but it had to be greenhouse gas emissions by way of pricing. So that's how narrow they got. And the the narrowness in this particular case, where you marry the scope or what we would normally see as the problem being addressed and the solution in one thing, it's, it's good from a federalism perspective if one looks at it from a provincial perspective and says that's very narrow. And therefore, your know, provincial jurisdiction and federalism is protected as narrowly uh, uh, or as much as possible. Provincial jurisdictions are broadly protected by the federal government's power being defined very narrowly. The difficulty with that approach that I see is what happens if it turns out, for example, that carbon pricing is not the best way to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, we come along and they come up with a better or different way of regulating industry, setting standards, for example, the number of uh, Uh, electric vehicles or what have you uh, as being perhaps a better way to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. And the federal government decides to 
introduce legislation for national standards. Well, the thing is, it would have to now go back to the courts because the, the, the problem is that by defining something so narrowly, including the process that has to be used by looking you know, only as a, on a legislation by legislation basis, which seems to be suggested here, is that the room for the federal government to maneuver is relatively small to tackle what is in fact a large problem. So by marrying the scope to the process to be used, I think may become a bit troubling from the perspective of what happens if there is another or better method comes along and that method to address exactly the same problem, you know, there's a second method to deal with the same problem, uh, is comes along, there, we may end up with litigation again. So uh, by doing things on a piece by piece of legislation basis, it can be, I think, maybe challenging down the road. So that's that's one of the areas that I, I'm concerned about. The other, I think, is this idea of you know grave danger. Not everything is dangerous, but there still may be national standards and you know the failure to act. So you know there is this idea of, and as Justice Brown said in his dissent, is what you're saying is well you're just going to encourage federal government to go out and start setting a whole bunch of minimum standards all over the place. And that's, I think, also, you know, from the provincial perspective is, you know, how do we how do we deal with this idea of minimum standards by way of process uh, is also another area that I think will crop up uh, in the future as well. All right. Is there anything else we want to touch on here? Is there any advice you would have to any, for example, young uh, law students looking to tackle this? Essentially, book length decision. <laughs> well, uh, 400 pages, so that's fine. Although the first 70 pages are, are, are a summary by way of the headnote. But I think what the court is really doing, and, and I, the other thing that struck me, I think, about the case, which was very interesting, is when the court started talking about the national concern and provincial inability, is whether or not what they're maybe trying to also do as part of the cooperative federalism is forcing the problem provinces to get together. So in other words, if they create a common front, a more the more common front the provinces present, saying, well, we have this, this way that we all agree that we're going to deal with this provincially, I think that may back the federal government off to a certain extent. What happened, obviously, when there's fractured provincial responses to things, there's probably some scope. I think one thing as a lawyer would be to look at Every time there's discord among the provinces, that may create an opportunity for the federal government uh, to perhaps be tempted to step in. The other thing is that uh, the court is very guarded about federal power, and therefore they want to, to define things narrowly. And by defining things narrowly, it leaves a large scope for provincial governments to operate, which suggests that there is always going to be a growing area of responsibility or so cooperative opportunities for cooperative federalism. So the idea that federal and provincial governments operating in the same sphere is probably going to continue. However, if, like I said, if there's discord, I think this is an opportunity. Or we may be seeing more of an opportunity for the federal government to come in with a targeted response to respond to a provincial discord. So I think that's probably the big takeaway. Sort of a united solution for a very vast problem. 
Correct. And, you know, with greenhouse gas, I think the other thing to, to bear in mind is, you know, as things become more and more complex, people are going to have to agree within the Canadian Federation or, you know, there's going to be a lot more litigation about specific responses. And I think the thing that was also interesting about this case was that there would seem to be whether or not the federal government would have been able to get away with this if there had not get away is perhaps not the best way to put it. If the federal government would have been able to legislate in this way and have the courts find that there was a national um, concern if there had not been the same kind of international and provincial agreement on what the solution ought to be. For example, carbon pricing and being international and federal, the provinces agreed and internationally it was agreed, but there were so, so-called rogue provinces that were being reined in versus if there had been various options on the table and there had not been the degree of consensus, I'm not so certain the court would have found the same thing. It's interesting to think about. And certainly a good way to go into the reading and, you know, as if your prediction upholds, probably the subsequent litigation that follow with possibly with the pace of technology. There will always be jobs for lawyers, and that's a good thing. (laughs) Uh, Litigation by Moore's Law. That's interesting. All right there, Professor Chaplin. That's an excellent context to sort of approach this. If we want to read more of your stuff, yeah, you've got a blog. Uh, Would you like to tell us where we can find your writing? As I said, my area of expertise or my particular area of expertise and research is, in fact, on the law of parliament. And you can find my uh, blog at lexparl, L-E-X-P-A-R-L dot com. It is not a specifically timed blog, but when issues come up, there will be uh, various postings primarily dealing with the, the law of parliament. That the header of the blog is the Mace of uh, Nunavut, right? A narwhal task. Very, very impressive thing. All right there, Professor Chapel. it's been wonderful to have you. I've been Jake Clark, and this has been The Law School Show. Thanks for listening. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.